having lunch, breakfast, I don't remember which, <laughs> with a minister of another church. And I don't know how we got off onto the subject, but began discussing TCF, and I don't remember exactly how we got onto this subject, but I began talking about, I think, Bill's house church, and of course Bill and I discussed his house church a lot and how diligent they were in very systematically moving through the study of the New Testament. began to talk about some of our Sunday night seminars and things that he read on the website that had been written, and just a general discussion about TCF. And he said this, I'm convinced Tulsa Christian Fellowship is the most biblically literate church in Tulsa. <laughs> And I thought, well, whoopee, if that's true. But you know, that makes a dickens of a problem for a preacher. <laughs> because I can't tell you one thing you don't already know. <laughs> uh, not really. This morning, I'm not going to tell you anything new. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you some things I've even told you before. And you've probably told me before. Last Sunday in his sermon, Bill quoted at one point Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, which concerning the relationship between the Father and the Son is one of the most revealing passages in God's Word. Now, I always have a problem when I'm reciting Scripture because for most of my life, I read the King James and now I read the New American Standard and I get them kind of confused, but the truth still comes out. <laughs> God, after he spoke long ago to the Father and the prophets, in many ways, and in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken unto us in his Son, whom he has made the heir of all things, and through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, King James says, fullness the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Speaking of the Son, and when he had made propitiation of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now I've told you before the... <clears throat> sense of awe and reverent fear I sense in the pulpit because I'm representing God when I'm in this role and someday I'm going to have to answer to God for how I have represented him and today we're going to embark on a very dangerous course I'm going to actually talk about God we're going to talk about the father and the son and their relationship and what that means to us. John chapter 5, the last portion, will be our central text this morning. Let me set the stage for you. About three months, possibly four, after Jesus began his earthly ministry, springtime had come. It was the vernal equinox, and following the vernal equinox, the full moon, and that meant it was time for the Passover because the first full moon after the vernal equinox determines when the Passover and for us when Easter is held. 
And so Jesus and the disciples that he had gathered at that time went to Jerusalem. And shortly after arriving, they went to the temple, and our Lord was greatly offended. For he saw animals there being sold, and in people doing all kinds of merchandising, they had turned the holy temple into a mart, so to speak. And in anger, he drove out the animals. He turned over the tables of the money changers. For you see, the Sadducees who ruled the temple had made religion a means of profit. If a man brought an ox to be sacrificed, and the priest looked at it and it didn't have the right mark on it, it was not one that had been bought in the temple for which he received a bit of money. He wouldn't accept it. If they brought a lamb that had not been bought in the temple, the priest would not accept it because he got a bit of money off of every lamb sold in the temple. When it came time to bring the temple tax, Sadducees said, we can only accept shekels. Shekels were no longer in circulation. And they had cornered all of them, and so they had money changers with stacks of shekels, and you would have to come and buy a shekel and take the shekel and give it as a temple tax. Then the priest would give it back, and they would resell it. A scam. <laughs> and after driving out the animals and turning over the tables of the money changers, Jesus said to those that were selling doves, My father's house should be a house of prayer, and you have made it a house of merchandise. Oh, the anger that was felt against Jesus because he had touched their money. Now he repeated that same thing three years later, the week he was crucified. But the next year he came back again for the Passover to Jerusalem. And once again he caused the ire of his enemies in a different way. When he began walking through the streets of Jerusalem, he came to a structure. It was uh, a structure that had several arches supported by very strong columns, but there was no floor. Instead, there was a pool. Archaeologists now have learned there were actually two very adjacent pools. And as he came into this structure, he saw a horde of people on the walkway around the pools. These were people who were sick. They had had illnesses of all kinds. And from time to time, the water would burst forth as a spring would send forth fresh water. But the tradition that developed was this. What caused that was an angel. An angel came down from heaven and disturbed the water. And so the first one into the water when that happened was healed. And so here was a horde of people hoping to be the first one in the water. And Jesus saw this crowd. And his eyes fell on one man. A man who had been a cripple for 38 years. And Jesus walked over him to him and said, Would you be healed? He said, Well, I don't have anybody to help me in the water. And every time before I get in, somebody else got in first. 
Now think of that, everybody jumping in, you didn't get healed, okay, I didn't make it first. Without any ado, Jesus healed him. Stand up, take your pallet, and go walk. Surprising, he was healed. He stood up and took his pallet and turned around, and Jesus had vanished into the crowd. He didn't know who he was. And he started walking down the street carrying his pallet and was accosted by Jewish authorities. What are you doing? This is the Sabbath day. You should not be carrying your pallet. You're working on the Sabbath. He said, well, the man who healed me told me to do it. (laughs) Who is that man? I don't know. Later, Jesus saw him in the temple and walked over to him and said one thing. Don't you sin anymore or a worse thing will happen to you. Now he knew the identity of his healer. And so he went to the Jewish rulers and said, I know who he is now. It's Jesus, that man over there. And so they went to Jesus and began to berate him because he was working on the Sabbath. And what was his work? Healing somebody. And Jesus said this, John 5, 17, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And now they had three reasons to want to kill him. First of all, he had messed up their money the year before. He had worked on the Sabbath, and now he was claiming that God was his father. The Jews were irate and wanted to kill him. No doubt, especially the Sadducees who remembered what he had done the year before. In response to that conflict, from John 5:19 on, Jesus delivered one of the most revealing discourses of his career. We're going to notice four things that he said about himself and his relationship with God the Father. First, Jesus said that he was not an independent agent doing his own thing. Again, 519. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. And verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You remember when Jesus was 12 years old, Joseph and Mary took him to the temple again on the Passover. And when they left, the caravan that should have headed back to Nazareth did, but Jesus stayed behind. They didn't know it. 
Later they searched for him. Remember, they came back and found him in the temple and began to scold him. And remember, Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. He was always about his father's business, not his own business. In that submissive spirit, Jesus has set the example for every one of us in submission. Let us do the Father's will. Very striking statement Jesus made at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21 and following, he said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who is doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Think about this. In your name cast out demons. In your name perform many miracles. And I will say to them, I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That, that last word is such a key. You see, they were doing their own thing. Think about that. Casting out demons. Performing miracles. How could that be? And yet they were. But they were not doing their work in submission to the will of the Father. They were doing their own thing. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a striking passage, isn't it? It's important that we know the will of the Father and we do it and nothing else. Many of you were back in the 80s when we were here, early 90s, and we had a course that we taught, Signs and Wonders, John Wimber's course. Some of you probably remember that. And one thing that I think was so important in John Wimber's Signs and Wonders course was this. When someone comes to you for prayer, whether it's for healing or any other reason, don't do anything until you stop and take time and seek what is God doing here. He may be going to heal. You know, we sang the song, He gives and takes away, He gives and takes away. There are times he doesn't take away, but he leaves it as it is for his purposes. John in 1 John wrote this in conclusion. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, <laughs> he hears us. And whatever we know, we have the request we've asked from him because we're asking according to your will. It's very important, my brother and sister, as we're involved in any kind of spiritual ministry, that we seek what is the will of God in this situation. That's especially true of teachers and preachers. What is the will of God? Second thing we see coming out of this passage is this. The sovereignty of the Father. 
when Jesus visited the synagogue in Nazareth, you remember he was just beginning his ministry, and they invited him to read from the Isaiah scroll, and he read Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and then he began his ministry. Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, you read an episode in which as Jesus was ministering and the crowds were about and Toward evening, he went into Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law was there, and she was sick with a fever. And Jesus healed her, and she got up and served them. And word began to spread about what had happened, and so that evening, hordes of people came with all kinds of sicknesses, and we're told in those three passages, parallel passages, Jesus healed every single one of them. The description of the list of diseases given there healed every one of them. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, especially verse 24 is an interesting one. Jesus now had gone back to Galilee and was doing ministry there. And in the evening, great crowds were brought to him with all kinds of illnesses. And one of them that sometimes we miss when we're reading our Bibles was mental illness. The King James uses the word lunatic. New American Standard says... Uh, epileptics. The word is selenagizomai. Selene is the Greek word for moon. It means someone who is moonstruck. Luna, Luna is a Latin word for moon, so lunatic, one who is moonstruck. The belief at that time was that moonlight caused mental illness. And epileptic episodes were caused by phases of the moon. So mental illness. Think of that. Jesus got rid of demons. Jesus healed the cripple. Jesus healed the mind, the blind. And on this occasion, he healed the mentally ill. Isn't that beautiful to think about? Every single one of them. But that didn't happen at the Pool of Bethesda. At the pool of Bethesda here was a horde of sick people desperately desiring to be healed. And Jesus ignored all of them but one. He healed only one man. Why? Truly I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father do. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. 519 and 530, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Here we see the sovereignty of God. Have you ever stopped to think about this? When God created the universe, put in motion what we would call laws gravity, other things, all kinds of natural laws. 
and the very perfect human bodies with which we, the human race began, we no longer have. We get old, we get wrinkled, we sag, <laughs> our knees hurt, and all kinds of things happen. <laughs> and from time to time, for reasons known only to him, God chooses to suspend the laws and do something that makes no logical sense as far as those laws are concerned. Sometimes we wonder, why doesn't he always do it? I wonder, why does he ever do it? <laughs> you know, think about this. I'm sick and I pray, oh God, heal me. Listen, I can hardly wait to get out of this world and into the next. <laughs> why not just let me go? Why do I have to stick around a while and get a few more wrinkles, a few more sags and aches? <laughs> you know, Why does he ever do it at all? For reasons known only to God, he does this, he does that, and he does the other. Now, we humans don't like that. We want a formula. We want something we can grasp. We want something we can understand. And you know, the word of faith, people think they've figured it out. Faith. When Jesus went to minister in Nazareth, Scripture says he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. When the blind men came to Jesus, as recorded in Mark 9, he said, be to you according to your faith and they were healed when the woman who touched the hem of his garment and was healed Jesus said it is your faith that has healed you and so we decide faith must be the key <laughs> the Greek word faith is pistis pistis is derived from pytho pytho means to persuade and it pistis therefore means I am so persuaded that something is true that you cannot convince me otherwise. That's pistis. That's the Greek word faith. And just as we think we have it all figured out, God throws us a curve. Think about the man at the pool of Bethesda. He didn't have any faith. Matter of fact, he's waiting to be thrown in the water, and Jesus healed him. And he's surprised. And in response to his healing, not his faith, he stood up and started to carry his pallet. Think about the time when Peter and John came to the gate beautiful as recorded in Acts 3. Here was a man who had been crippled from his birth and they would carry him and put him at the gate beautiful and people would come to the temple and he'd beg alms. And here came Peter and John he was begging an alms from him and Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I give of thee. Stand up and walk. And he jerked the man up. <laughs> no faith there. Of course, that caused a great revival, didn't it? A lot of people turned into Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus talks about the case of the prophet who was sent to a widow inside. And he said, There were all kinds of widows. Starvation was everywhere. But God sent him to just one where they had the cruise of oil that never ran out for the whole time. He said, you know, there are a lot of lepers around, but only Naaman was sent to the prophet. And think about that story here. A Jewish maiden who was a slave began to talk to this noble 
you know, I know you have leprosy, but I believe you can be healed. I think there's a prophet that can. And he went to this prophet, and Elisha said, uh, okay, go dip seven times in the river Jordan. He said, what? That muddy place? I have better rivers back where I came from. I'm not going to do that. He got mad and started to leave. <laughs> his servant said, well, if he told you to climb a mountain or walk through fire, why can't you go so grudgingly? Naaman went in the river and dipped seven times, and to his surprise... He was healed. No faith, but grudging obedience. Obedience is such a key to what we do. Do I believe in divine healing? I do. Let me tell you two stories. You've probably heard both of them. A few years after Barbara and I were married, she began to manifest illnesses that puzzled some, and finally... Sometime in the 1960s, the primary physician, Dr. Crafton James, had her go to his son, David James, who's a gastroenterologist, and she was diagnosed with chronic ulcerative colitis. And those were horrible years. I've carried her into the hospital when she looked like a corpse from Dachau. One occasion gave her four units of blood, I remember medical bills enormous I remember one time they, here's a new antibiotic we've discovered it is just for this I remember it cost $90 a bottle I didn't have $90 but I found it somewhere Francis McNutt came to Oral Roberts University maybe center in the late 1970s probably around 1980 perhaps it would have been then. And he was presenting a healing seminar. And I, among a few other Christian church ministers who no longer were cessationists, were looking for new knowledge and understanding of things of the Spirit. And so some of us went together to that Francis McNutt seminar on healing. One morning we met in Gary Gilmore's house. Gary Gilmore, his wife, Barbara and I, Drew Graham, who some of you remember that old prophet. <laughs> we were there. And prayers for Barbara's healing were uttered in that meeting. And that afternoon we went back to the session and that night. And the next morning, Barbara and I went to the hospital because they were planning to remove her colon and the doctor wanted to do one last colonoscopy we had, she had a colonoscopy at least twice a year it was very routine and Dr. David James did it now for at least two decades this man knew her literally inside out <laughs> and one thing that she had taken for years was azulfidine. Azulfidine was something that you took that was not adsorbed, not absorbed, but not adsorbed into the system. And so he began doing this colonoscopy the day after this prayer. And I waited, expecting to kind of hear what I always heard. He came out with a strange look on his face. This woman 
longer has ulcerative colitis. There's no evidence she ever had it. Now, even when it is in remission, there are tissues that they call burned <laughs> evidence you've had it. He said there's no burned tissues. This woman has no ulcerative colitis, and this is the man who had watched it for years. Quit taking your medicine. I said, well, should she quit taking the azulfidine? Why should she take it? She has nothing to take it for. Tell you what, that 1974 green Chevrolet <laughs> drove back to the maybe center six feet off the ground. And for almost a year, my wife enjoyed beautiful and perfect health. We came to TCF in February of 1981. In less than a year, she had ulcerative colitis. I don't know why. You remember Chuck Farah began to struggle increasingly with his bipolar illness? Bill Sanders was that very year diagnosed with Parkinson's. The three of us who had been a triumphant, Bill's wife died of breast cancer, Chuck's wife died of breast cancer, my wife didn't, but continued in sickness till the time of her death, 20, somebody, eight, almost 30 years later. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but I know beyond question that I witnessed a healing. Gordon Wright and I, as most of you know, traveled together first behind the Iron Curtain, and then after the fall of communism, continued traveling together for a few years. Interesting thing, when we first went in working with these very narrow and legalistic Pentecostals, we didn't know any better, and we brought ties. No, you can't wear a tie in the pulpit, so we didn't wear ties. They criticized my wedding ring because that was ornamentation. When we went back uh, Easter season of, I believe it was 92, after the fall of communism, we didn't bring ties. Now they changed their rules. You couldn't preach without one. So we had to borrow ties. <laughs> and in that particular church, at least, the one in Kiev, Easter lasted two weeks. Every night, church services, so on and so on. And so we'd be out in the village all day, and we'd go to the church service at night and preach and on this one night, I was just as worn out as I could be, having been busy in the village all day, and then in the pulpit that night, and I preached, and the custom was, after every sermon, there was always a line of people coming forward for prayer for one thing or another. And on this particular night, Gordon and the translator were over here with some Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians were hooping and hollering, exciting in their prayers, and I was over here all by myself, so worn out, I didn't have a hoop and holler left. And a crowd coming by... I was praying for people. I didn't have a translator. I had no idea what they were asking to be prayed for. But I had an amazing sense that night of being in touch with the throne room of heaven. I could almost see Jesus interceding for me. And so one by one, I prayed for these people. The next night, when it was time for the service to begin, a whole group of people came in the back door and sat across the back. 
And Gordon asked Nikolai Levchenko, who are these people? And Nikolai said, last night, Jim Garrett prayed for a crippled woman, and she was healed, and her whole village is here tonight. I believe that God heals because I've seen it. But not every time. And why? He is sovereign and has reasons. Let me tell you something. Neither my wife nor I would ever have chosen that path that we had to walk those years. But neither would either, either one of us ever want to give up the depth in which we came to know Jesus through those horrible years that we walked through. God knew our spiritual life was more important than our physical health. He is sovereign. A third thing that leaps to our attention in this passage is the eminence of the Father. You know, a lot of quarters, all the focus is on Jesus. Some all the focus is in the Holy Spirit. But the biblical view recognizes the eminence of the Father. Remember Hebrews 1, 3 said, After he had made atonement for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Not to Jesus. He taught us to pray our Father. Some years ago, when I wrote a paper on the biblical pattern of prayer, the New Testament pattern, but the biblical pattern, I went through every passage. I read the entire New Testament and wrote down every verse that said anything about prayer. From Pentecost on, Jesus Christ was never spoken to unless he appeared in a vision. Every single prayer and every mention of prayer was always to God the Father, not Jesus. And the only prayer that might have been toward Jesus was when Paul said, I thank the Lord for putting me into ministry. And we know that story about the episode that happened on the road to Maus. So it would be natural Paul to say, yeah, I thank him he did it. But think about that. I did not find one single prayer anywhere to anyone other than God the Father. By the leading of the Holy Spirit and through the Son, who is our intercessor, but ultimately to God the Father. And the only time Jesus is ever spoken of from Pentecost on is when he appears in a vision and some speaks to him in that way. The eminence of God the Father. Jesus is our high priest interceding before the Father for us, Romans eight thirty four. And it, notice this. He is the one who receives the glory when we confess Jesus. Philippians 2.11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ. Why? To the glory of God the Father. And one reason Jesus came to the earth is to reveal the Father. Remember Philip said to him, Record in John 14. After, well, Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, that will suffice as Jesus said, Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 14 and verse, verse 18, it said, you know, Jesus said, No one has seen the Father except him that came to the Father, and it is he who explains him. 
One of the reasons Jesus came to the earth, of course, was to atone us for sin, atone for our sins. But also he came to reveal the Father. Well, we better move along more quickly. We honor the Father by honoring the Son. You see, we can get so focused that we forget we also honor the Son. John 5, again, verse 23, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. We honor the Father by honoring the Son. Verse 23 of John 5, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? To the glory of of the Father, but we honor the Son and thus honor the Father. The present age in which we live, Jesus is the one who, as Hebrews 1 said, holds the world in his hands. Jesus in Matthew 28 said, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. That's pretty absolute, isn't it? But then in John 15, it's interesting you see this passage. It says, The Father will subject everything unto him until everything is subjected unto him except God the Father. And after Christ has subjected everything unto him, then he will hand back to the Father the kingdom. Something to think about, isn't it? And yet, we honor the Son. Who today is the one who, as the old song says, holds the world in his hands. Four things, then, we notice from John 5, the last half. Well, let me say, you remember when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman? And she asked him, he said, you know, what are we supposed to worship? Our ancestors say here on Mount Gerizim, you all say you're supposed to do, you all, she wasn't Southern, she's Samaria. Uh, you worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said, you don't even know who you worship. You worship whom you don't know. I wonder how many times do we Christians worship whom we don't know. <laughs> we need to not say more than is said in Scripture about it, but we also need to be sure to say what we do know about it. And in John 5, we see these things. Jesus set the model for us in submitted ministry. There's no place for a freelance agent in the kingdom of God doing his own thing. Number two, we must recognize the sovereignty of God the Father. Number three, the eminence of the Father must always be recognized. And number four, when we honor the Son, we honor the Father. May God be praised.